0: Welcome back it's great to have your company wherever you may be listening this is mlex's weekly podcast covering the top stories in the world of regulatory affairs with the assistance of our global team of reporters my name is james Paniki. i'm Mnex's asia pacific senior editor now if you know what cryptocurrencies are i'm guessing that you'll also have heard all about their bad boy reputation crypto can be used by criminals of all shapes and sizes to hide ill-gotten gains from authorities or at least that's what we've been told. But is that actually the case? Well, an insider trading prosecution in the US may suggest that law enforcement agencies can successfully use blockchain analysis to work out who owns what. And that would tell us that, in fact, it's very difficult to use crypto assets to evade the long arm of the law. We'll hear all about that in just under 10 minutes from now. First up, though, the prosecution in Italy of oil and gas giants Shell and Eni over allegations of bribery had all the makings of a Hollywood blockbuster, corrupt politicians, middlemen and a former justice minister. But not unlike the recent Warner Brothers' Batgirl, this movie won't make it to our screens. The reason for that is the Italian prosecutor assigned to handle the appeal has pulled the plug on the case. It's all over. Now, whatever the legal merits of that decision, it has sparked an intense debate both within and outside Italy. The prosecution would have been the biggest ever of its kind, with alleged bribes worth 1.3 billion US dollars, and the concern was that the case could have been susceptible to political influence. While international campaigners are afraid that the scuttling of the prosecution could undermine Italy's international anti bribery credentials, MNEX's award-winning anti-bribery and corruption reporter Phoebe Sears has been covering this case for years now, and she joins us from London today. So, Phoebe, uh, when did this all begin, and how did Shell and the Rome-based Eni come to be involved?
1: Hi, James. So, I think we could probably start in around 1998. This was when the Nigerian government awarded the licence to what looked to be a lucrative offshore oil block. Uh, which came to be known as OPL245, to a company called Malibu Oil and Gas. So it later transpired that Malibu was in fact owned by the then oil minister, Dan Atete. Shell came to be involved as early as 2001, but with subsequent changes to the government in Nigeria, led to years of wrangling over the licence and the legitimacy of the transfer to Malibu back in 1998. This was kind of resolved in 2011, um, by which point Etete had a money laundering conviction against his name, with an agreement between his company Malibu, Shell, Eni and the government of Nigeria. Shell and Eni agreed to pay $1.1 billion. So it later transpired that the vast majority of that money ends up in Etete's bank accounts and then goes on to many other accounts. It's transferred into different currencies and withdrawn as cash. Nigeria gets next to nothing.
0: Okay, so the Italian connection to Eni is clear, but why did uh, this end up before prosecutors in the northern Italian city of Milan?
1: So almost immediately after the deal was completed, issues emerged in lawsuits that were filed by intermediaries in the deal who say that they were owed money for fixing meetings between company executives and high-ranking politicians Uh, Later, the Nigerian parliament even voted to cancel the deal and red flags emerged. For example, the licence was awarded without a tender, which was against Nigerian law. In 2014, prosecutors in Milan revealed that they were investigating some of the allegations and not long after, Dutch prosecutors raided Shell's headquarters. NGOs in Italy and in the UK started publishing leaked emails between senior Shell executives in which they were sort of shown to be discussing the deal, which talked about paying people off and acknowledging that the money was going to go to Etete. In 2018, the Milan trial got underway. Among the 15 defendants are Shell and Eni, Eni's current and former CEO and four former Shell executives – They were all accused of paying bribes to secure the OPL 245 licence. The trial ran for more than two and a half years. It was led by Fabio de Pasquale, who was known in Italy for having secured corruption convictions against two former Italian prime ministers. But it was a really long and drawn out affair. The court only sat once a week, usually every Wednesday, and it was interrupted by Covid. It ended in March 2021 with all of the defendants acquitted.
0: Now, as is often the case with Italian investigations, there are claims and uh, counterclaims, allegations of underhanded tactics. What do we need to know on that front?
1: Okay, so immediately after the defendants were cleared, reports emerged in Italian press that Eni's lawyers had access, I suppose you'd say, to the chief judge in the court, Claudio Descalzi, the current CEO of Eni, had instructed a former justice minister in Italy as his lawyer so she could hardly have had more influence. The judgment, when it came out a couple of months later, criticised the prosecutors in the case for failing to file with the court documents that they said were beneficial to Eni's case. That sparked a criminal probe into the prosecutors themselves, something which was said to be a first for a Milan court. And the prosecutors investigating the prosecutors say they have enough evidence to take them to court. Notwithstanding that De Pasquale had prepared all the appeal papers, it was not a given that he would actually get to handle the appeal. And in the, event, in the end, it was given to Celestina Gravina, um, another prosecutor in Milan.
0: OK, well, let's talk about the appeal uh, last month. What, uh, what happened there? What do we need to know?
1: So unbelievably, the new prosecutor uh, on the first day of the appeal filed a waiver with the court withdrawing her case irrevocably. And in court, she said that the case should have ended much earlier. Again, this was something which was said to have never happened before in a Milan court.
0: Okay, so what's next for Shell and Annie? Is it all over or is there more to come?
1: So the Milan criminal case, you know, which we were looking at an alleged bribe of more than a million dollars, so it was one of the largest corruption cases that has been prosecuted anywhere in the world. The Milan criminal case is over, you know. It won't be resurrected. Uh, Nigeria, however, is a kind of civil party in, in the case, and their claim against the oil companies for damages in Italy continues. And the next hearing in the civil claim will be in September So the doctrine of double jeopardy forced prosecutors in the Netherlands to withdraw their investigation shortly after the Milan appeal was dropped. So that was another kind of major knock-on effect. Uh, Not long ago, the prosecutors in the Netherlands said they have enough evidence to press charges against Shell. Um, There is still one criminal investigation ongoing, and that's in Nigeria.
0: Phoebe, what an incredible story. Thank you so much for covering it for MLEX.
1: Thanks, James.
0: Phoebe Sears is an MLEX anti bribery and corruption reporter, and she was joining us from the UK. Her most recent analysis of this incredible case has been unceremoniously tossed over the paywall, and it's ready for you to read right now. The address is, as always, MLEXMarketInsight.com. That's M L E X MarketInsight.com. You'll see a tab. Just underneath the MLEX logo, it's called News Hub. If you click on that, you'll have the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis at your fingertips. And our subscribers, of course, have access to the full portfolio of coverage of the Any Shell prosecution going all the way back to December 2015. So even purely out of a sense of nostalgia, you might want to revisit some of those old stories. That said, thank you for staying with us. You're with MX's Regulatory Podcast. I'm James Panicki. And coming up, has the time come to debunk the myth of cryptocurrencies as the plaything of organised crime? And of course, this podcast is eminently downloadable. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. And should you be called upon to leave a review, please don't hesitate. It helps direct new listeners to the program. Now, insider trading prosecutions in the US are very much a dime a dozen. But recent insider trading charges brought against a former manager of Coinbase, a cryptocurrency exchange, are of particular interest, at least to our financial services senior correspondent Neil Rowland. Why, I hear you ask? Well, because to investigate the case, the FBI has cracked open a cryptocurrency blockchain ledger to work out who owns what, which raises the question, are crypto assets really the go-to currency for criminals who are hoping to remain lurking in the shadows? Neil Rowland discussed this very issue with Mlex's Laurel Henning.
2: Neil, with respect to cryptocurrencies, what does insider trading actually look like? How is it different to insider trading on a different market?
3: Well, the different definition of insider trading, Laurel, is the same for crypto as for Wall Street. It's when an insider exploits access to confidential information to help make a profit for himself for people he knows. The difference is in how this access might be exercised. And that's because crypto markets work differently from the traditional securities market.
2: Okay. And with those differences in mind, the case that we're discussing today involved a former Coinbase manager. So how uh, was it different than the other perhaps more traditional cases that we've seen from the US Justice Department and Securities and Exchange Commission?
3: Well, that Coinbase manager, Ishan Wahi allegedly had access to information about which digital tokens were going to list for trading on the Coinbase exchange. When a crypto platform announces that a token is going to be listed, its price typically goes up a lot. Wahi allegedly tipped off his brother and a friend that certain tokens were going to be listed, and they supposedly bought the tokens before the listing and sold them afterward.
2: Okay. And the first two crypto insider trading indictments in the U.S. have taken place in the last few months. Is that timing significant?
3: Uh, Yes, it is. In fact, it's very significant. We we just talked about the Coinbase case, Laurel, but in June, authorities also bought the first insider trading case involving NFTs or non-fungible tokens, Those are one-of-a-kind items such as trading cards or works of art. In this case, the indictment was of a manager at OpenSea, the largest online NFT marketplace. The dynamic was the same as in the Coinbase case. The manager allegedly bought NFTs before they were featured on OpenSea's homepage and sold them afterward when the prices went up. So what has changed in the last few months? Authorities are signaling the market that they've gotten serious about crypto insider trading and that they can back it up. They've vastly increased their resources and know-how. The FBI formed a crypto investigative unit early this year and occasionally taps outside experts. The SEC increased its crypto enforcement unit from 30 positions to 50, 30 to 50. Authorities also believe they have a legal theory that will stand up in court.
2: OK, so authorities are really, as it were, putting their money where their mouth is, walking walking the walk of, of enforcement, beefing up in terms of resources. And also, Neil, I really appreciate that you actually know what an NFT is, because I feel like that's always the first question when I hear those three letters is what actually are they? Um, But tell me a little bit about how the SEC went about making its case. Did it have to equate digital assets to securities to make the case?
3: Well, Laurel, that's the legal theory that the SEC believes is sound. The commission alleged that nine of the tokens illegally traded on Coinbase are securities, placing them under the SEC's jurisdiction the Commission cites a Supreme Court decision in saying these securities are investment contracts that should have been registered.
2: And what did Coinbase have to say about this?
3: Well, Coinbase is one of the world's largest crypto exchanges. So it points out correctly that it wasn't charged, that it cooperated with the investigation, and that it fired Wahi. But Coinbase also disputes that the nine tokens were securities It says the SEC can't legally file charges because it has no crypto rule regime. This argument against, quote, regulation by enforcement has the backing of a number of Republican regulators and lawmakers. On the other hand, SEC chair Gary Gensler, a Democrat, says the commission has the legal basis to root out fraud in financial markets without a regulatory framework aimed at crypto.
2: These cases are clearly significant. What exactly do they tell us about what we might see and what you might be reporting on, Neil, in the future?
3: Well, as a reporter, Laurel, you know, you're always looking out for regulator signals. The Coinbase case was the first time that the SEC identified digital tokens as unregistered securities without also charging the companies that issued these tokens. That raises the obvious question whether the commission might be exploring cases against the issuers of these nine tokens. In addition, Gensler, the SEC chair, has encouraged all crypto exchanges to register with the commission so it can oversee them more closely. So far, none have done so, Laurel. In addition, Gensler has said he plans to investigate crypto platforms that enable trading in unregistered securities. Coinbase, as a matter of fact, has previously disclosed it is under SEC investigation. So, will the SEC actually pursue a case against Coinbase for listing unregistered securities? Will it bring cases against any digital platforms for doing the same thing? Stay tuned.
2: Neil, your story, I think, perfectly illustrates this ongoing tension between regulators, authorities and the development of these new um, technologies is the wrong word, but exchanges, currencies. There's going to be a lot to report on this in the future, I can tell. But thank you so much for talking with me today.
3: My pleasure, Laurel.
0: Neil Rowland, MLEx North American Senior Financial Services correspondent, joining us there from Washington, DC. And he was speaking with Laurel Henning in Sydney, Australia. Neil's analysis of this case is well worth a read, and if you haven't seen it already, it's now available at mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. Just make a beeline for the news hub tab. Now, sadly, that's where we'll have to leave things for today. Thank you very much for your company. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at around the same time for all of the latest from our team of crackerjack reporters around the globe. Today's program was presented and produced by me, James Paniki, and magically appeared online thanks to the kind efforts of Mlex's London-based marketing team battling its way through a heatwave to bring you your weekend listening. From everyone here at MLex and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.